Well, it is good to be with you guys this morning, and I brought me a little prop today, um, and, uh, and, and you get to play along with me on this a little bit, if you would, so, uh, so I'm going to tell you what that little prop is, but before I do that, Judd, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I realized I was recharging my computer on my desk. Would you mind grabbing it off the little docking station and bring it to me? I pretty much know by the, time, the third time I'm preaching something what I'm saying, but you know, it might be good to just have a little idea to make sure what I'm saying follows along with your notes that you're going to be going with there. So this is, you have to guess what this is, okay? That's, that's part of the game today. But let me tell you a few of the things that have been happening that I've been doing here recently. And I'm sure like many of you have been trying to take advantage of some of the time at home to work on some projects. So I've trimmed back some trees that were keeping, you know, to, putting too much shade, keeping grass from growing. I've planted some new sod. I've worked on some, uh, replacing some sprinkler heads and things like that. Even had a friend come out and help me fix a completely broken pipe underneath ground. So lots of those types of projects, right? Put new mulch down. So a lot of you have been doing the same thing, right? All right, so I've been working outside, doing some things outside. So what is this? You might want to take a guess. What it is, you, you really can talk about it. What, what do you think of this? It's a tree branch I hear over there. I heard something else. It's your cross. It's my cross. <laughs> yeah, right? There you go. So, yes, tree branch would be a good guess, but it would be a wrong guess. What this is, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You can just hand it to me. Thank you. Uh, what this is is not a tree branch. This is a tree root. So when I was doing some of the stuff and trying to figure out, you know, certain reasons why grass wasn't growing in certain areas, one of the reasons was it needed a little more sunlight, maybe a little bit more water. But another reason was there was a big old massive root that had come up above ground. So I cut it out. Now I'm hoping that that decision doesn't come back to bite me later, right? And the tree says, okay, I'm gone. You cut out my roots. But there are a lot of different roots. I'm thinking maybe it can do without this one. We'll see. Uh, but as I got this thing up out of the ground, and I was amazed, you know, once I pulled it up, I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive. This immediately, this image that came to mind for me was, this is what we've been talking about in our study in Hebrews lately. You know, growing in our faith and the, the importance of deep roots and really, you know, kind of going down beneath the surface and, and growing up, and we've seen that in Hebrews, you know, you shouldn't be infants anymore, but you should grow up in your faith and those kinds of things. So um, I had to bring that with me as a little visual today, but I also went back just kind of for fun and thought, I wonder what pictures we may have. And there was one in particular that I was looking for, and I actually found it. So here we go. This is the tree. By the way, aren't those two little girls so cute there? This was 2004 when we first bought our house, and you can see the tree behind them. And the amazing thing to me is that little bitty, not even two-year-old on the right there just graduated last night, which blows your mind. That's another story, how quickly things happen. Um, that was the tree about 16 years ago. Fast forward 16 years, here's another picture from about the same angle. Tree looks a little different, right? And it should, because that's what's supposed to happen. Things are supposed to grow. They're supposed to sprout branches. They're supposed to produce fruit, or in this case, leaves are supposed to happen. That's what should happen in our Christian faith as well. We shouldn't just stay a little twig forever, right? But we grow, we develop, we blossom, but that's not going to happen unless we develop a good root system. Unless there is something to, to really help us um, have what we need. Now, with trees, 
I'm going to put this down here so we can be reminded of the importance of our roots. With trees, I think there are just a few things that are needed in order for them to grow properly, right? I mean, it needs some sunlight, it needs some water, maybe some food, or something like that occasionally. Uh, I would say that they need good soil, but actually our soil here is terrible and they seem to grow anyway, so maybe that's not as important as I once thought it was, but, uh, but few things are needed. Here's what I think most trees at least do not need if you want them to grow, and that is they don't need added stress. They don't need yahoos like me cutting their roots out, right? That's probably not the best thing for them. However, when it comes to growing in our faith, it's interesting how God often uses the most stressful things that we go through to help us grow deeper roots. It works a little differently with us. We have to go through those stressful times sometimes in order to really grow and become who God wants us to be. Now, lately, we've gone through a lot of stressful times, haven't we? When we've been experiencing, um, you know, certainly with the pandemic, there's been a lot that's come along with that. There have been people that have lost their lives. There have been people that have gotten ill. There have been people that have lost their livelihood. Um, there have been... You know, isolation does things and, you know, depression and suicide, substance abuse, all those things are really elevated right now because of the stress that we've been going through. It's a lot of stress. And then on top of all of that stress, you add the recent killing of murder of George Floyd, as it appears, racial tensions that come as a result of that. Add that on top of an already really stressful situation. I mean, guys, we, we live in a time filled with stress. And before we, we move on and talk about how to develop deep roots, let me just for one second just kind of pause there and make a couple of comments that I think need to be made as we're talking about that issue. In particular, one of the issues that has risen to the surface now is the issue of racial injustice and and there are two things that I want to say around that. Number one is this, this is for speaking for myself individually, but also for our church. And I think this needs to be our stance as a body of Christ, that any form of racism needs to be strongly uh, renounced and, and needs to be dealt with. And one of the things that's been evident to me coming out of this is that we still have a lot of progress to make. There's still a long way to go in that area. Uh, and so we need to stand together and we stand with our black brothers and sisters um, to say racism is not to be tolerated in any form. Second thing that I want to say, we also stand with our police officers, the vast majority of whom are doing amazing work and are truly out there to protect and to serve. Now, those that are not and those that use it, use their authority to, to uh, you know, and abuse that authority need to be dealt with. Um, and need to be gotten rid of and, and face the consequences of that. But the vast majority of them really are out there risking their lives for us. And I think both of those things need to be said. But as we jump into our passage for today, I want you to follow along with me in Hebrews chapter 8, if you would. Hebrews chapter 8, um, starting in verse 1. I want to first read the first six verses and this is picking up on coming off of chapter 7 where Stephen gave a great message last week about Jesus uh, being coming in the order of Melchizedek. So this idea of Jesus being a priest and a king, that's taking that 
Same idea in carrying it on. Verse 1. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That, this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So as we read this, this section of scripture, again, we're reminded of something we've been talking about for several weeks, and that is that Jesus is better, and we keep fleshing that out in different ways. Here's one of the reasons that Jesus is better that we see in this passage. Jesus, our high priest, serves from a position of authority. That's really what it's saying when it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty. Jesus is serving from a position of authority. Whenever you see that term right hand in the Bible, think about power, think about authority. Jesus serving at the right hand of majesty, referring to his father, means that he has been given authority as our high priest. And it says also something very interesting to me, that he is seated at the right hand of God, of the Father. Now, something I read in a commentary, I had not read this before, uh, but I thought was interesting, it said that in the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, there was no place, they, did not, they didn't have seats for the priests because a priest's work was never finished. And so the idea was as long as you are in your own duty, in the temple, doing your thing, there's always some type of service to be accomplished. And so there's no reason to sit down. You only sit down when the work is finished. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I love that reminder that the work of Jesus, Jesus comes from a place of authority because he has already finished the work. It is completed. It has been done. What was one of the last things Jesus said when he was dying on the cross? He said, it is what? It's finished. It is finished. That's right. The work is done. And we seem to come back to that over and over again. One, because in the Bible, we come back to it over and over again. And when it's there in the scripture, we need to address it. But we also come back to it so frequently because we need to be reminded of the finished work of Christ because by our human nature, we drift toward thinking there's some type of effort that we have to add to what Jesus has already done. And that's just our, our human nature. Um, I don't know how many times I've had a conversation with somebody trying to explain what the gospel's all about and you know, Christ died for us and he paid for our sins and he's done everything for us. The work is complete, it's finished. And the response is, ah, there's got to be something. You know, I've, there's this feeling of I've got to do something. I've got to add something to it. And so there's this, this part of our human nature that wants to add to what Christ has done on the cross. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father because the work is complete. There's nothing else that we add. Now, that's the work of salvation. The work of what we might call sanctification, which is the process of purifying our lives and making us reflect the life of Christ more. That process of sanctification, that, that is not complete. 
The Bible says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's always working in us, right? But the, the work of salvation is done. It's complete. And then God continues. And by the way, it's not even by our own effort that we become more like Christ. That's the work of God in us as well. And so we allow him to do his work. But Jesus here we find is seated at the right hand of the Father. And it says that, that he is in the true tabernacle. That is a, a, um, a way of contrasting the tabernacle or the, the, the temple in heaven to what was produced on earth. In Exodus 25, God gives Moses very specific instructions about how to build the tabernacle. And the reason it's so specific is because it was to reflect what was in heaven. It was to be a picture or a shadow Right of what is in heaven. Jesus doesn't, doesn't serve in the one that is a copy or a shadow. Jesus serves in the real deal. And, and the way he does that, it says, is by having something to offer. Verse 3, every priest, it says, necessary also for this one to have something to offer, just like the others did. So Jesus had a little something to offer. What did he offer? Well, other priests offered sacrifices. It could be a, a drink offering. It could be a grain offering. It could be an animal sacrifice, a bird. Of, you know, any number of things. What did Jesus offer? Jesus gave himself. Not just a little something. Jesus gave everything. And we'll get into that further in chapter 10 when we get there in a little while. Uh, but one of the things that I find so ironic reading this passage in verse 4, uh, it says if Jesus were, a, were, were on earth, he would not be a priest. You realize that Jesus wasn't qualified to be an earthly priest according to the, the lineage that you had to follow in order to be a priest. Because it wasn't like somebody just said, hey, I think I will serve as a priest. I love God and I want to serve in the ministry. It's not how it worked back then. You had to come from the line of Aaron. That's where the priests came from. Jesus didn't. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and the reason he did is because that was the tribe that the Messiah would come from. This goes back to what we looked at last week. Jesus is a priest, but he's also our king. He's also the Messiah who came uh, to rescue us. And, and his qualifications for serving as priest, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 16, it says it, wa it wasn't based on his, uh, his ancestry. It was based on the fact that he had what it describes here as an indestructible life. In other words, who he is is what qualifies Jesus to serve as priest. Not who his earthly lineage is, but who his heavenly lineage is, his, his father. Uh, that's what qualifies him. And so Jesus is superior in that way because uh, his, it says in verse 6 that his ministry is as superior to theirs as the covenant that he is mediator uh, is superior to the old one. Now, why is that the case? Why is this new covenant superior to the old one? It says at the end of verse 6, because it was founded on better promises. Now, let's dig into that further, because that's an interesting thing to say, that God created something that was then inferior to something else that God created. Verse 7 says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Here's the second thing I want you to see today, and that is that Jesus instituted a new covenant that is superior to the old one. The new covenant, it says, is superior to the old one. Now we'll talk about why in just a minute, but first of all, we need to talk about what. What, what is this old covenant that, that is now inferior to the new covenant? The old covenant he's referring to is the covenant of the law. God gave the law through Moses, starting with the Ten Commandments, and then expounding on that a little bit further into specific ways that the people were to live. Um, but that was the old covenant. The reason the new covenant is superior is because the old covenant was based on the individual's ability to keep his or her side of the deal. So as long as you're faithful to God's laws, you're in good shape. But when you begin to rebel against God's laws, then there's a problem. Let's read about it. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 18 says, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Now, as one commentator put it, um, the, the people, because their responsibility was to hold up their end of the bargain, he said they were doomed before they even started. And that's true. Because of our sinful nature, we aren't capable of perfectly following God's law. Now, it says that when, in, in this case, when you follow it, you'll be blessed. When you don't follow it, you're, you're going to face the wrath of God. Um, I would say that's a difficult spot to be in because none of us is going to follow God's laws perfectly. That's why this new covenant, he says, is a better covenant. Now, the problem was not with the covenant itself. The problem was, verse 8, it says God found fault with the people. It wasn't that God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. He always does. But the people didn't and they couldn't, which raises another question. Why would God then institute this covenant with people that he knew they couldn't keep? And, and part of the answer to that is that God knew that there was something else that was coming, that this wasn't the final covenant that he was going to have with his people. First of all, it did also reflect God's glory and God's holiness, and it gave some direction for how to live. But beyond that, it pointed towards something else that was coming. Galatians 3, verse 19 says, Why was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In other words, the law was this temporary thing that was to... to it was necessary because of transgressions. It was necessary to give some direction to the people, but it was just temporary until Jesus would come and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on behalf of God's people. See, it shifts from the old covenant being an if-you covenant. If you do this, then that's what God will do. The new covenant is all about I will. It's all about God saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I will do in these cases and, and, and these situations. And so part of the purpose, too, of the law 
was that it helped us recognize what sin really is. And the Bible speaks to that, Romans and Galatians, and it talks about, you know, I wouldn't have known what sin is if it weren't for the law. And the law points us toward the fact that we are sinful and we need a Savior. Sometimes we just have to try and fail in order to figure it out, right? I don't know if anybody else is like that. There are times when I'm about to do something, I'm thinking, this is probably not going to work. Or maybe my wife is telling me, this is not going to work. And I'm like, yes, but I need to try it myself to see, and then I'll figure out it doesn't work, and I'll be ready to move on to the next solution. But I just got to try it myself. Anybody else like that? Sometimes it's like, you know, I just got to try it. I just got to do it. And by having the law, it enabled us to learn, okay, I can see now that I cannot measure up on my own. I can't do it on my own. And then at that point, hopefully we'd be ready to say, okay, I'm ready to receive what God wants to give. So it's all about what God has done on our behalf through Christ. Now here's the last thing that I want you to see today. And that is that God's new covenant with His people is deeply personal. His new covenant is deeply personal. The old one was the covenant of the law, a little bit more impersonal, you know, follow these rules. The new one is different. The new one talks, says things like, I will be their God and they will be my people. It says things like, I will take my laws and I will write them on their hearts. I will put them in their minds. It's very personal. It's very intimate. That's what this new covenant is all about. And the, the cool thing is, when we're reading all these things from verse 8 and following, you realize this is just a direct quote from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He's just quoting the Old Testament. This isn't something, you know, where, where, where God said, oh, I don't think my first option is working. I better come up with another one. God knew from the beginning what he was doing. And way, even back hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, he already had a plan and said, look, I'm going to, there, there's going to be a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to be different in that it will be deeply personal. Things change when they get personal. I was reflecting back on, um, for some reason, being at a football game, maybe because I miss those things these days, but being at a football game a few years ago, a high school football game here in town. And I was there to cheer for the home team, you know, and, and um, the quarterback that day, he was having a rough day. You know, just, he just wasn't having a good game. He wasn't, you know, particularly making good decisions. And, and, uh, and I'm watching this, and, you know, he's doing a whole lot better than I could do, for sure. But there's something that, that gets in the psyche of those of us that follow sports and watch it. It's like we, have, we feel like we have this right to criticize the people that are doing it wrong in our own minds and, be, and, and tell them what they're doing wrong, right, or to fuss about it. It's like, as a fan, I have a right to fuss at you when you do something wrong. I don't know where we get that, but that's in our heads. That's in my head, anyway. And so I'm sitting at the game, and I think he throws another interception, does something else wrong. He was just having a bad night. And I let out sound probably like, oh, come on, man, or something like that. You know, it actually verbally came out, not just in my head. And my wife, who was sitting by me at the time, guys, you ever get the hand? You know what I'm talking about? the little hand that communicates a lot without communicating anything. She just kind of gave me the hand real quick, and I look at her, and she says, his mom is sitting right behind us. I said, okay, thank you. Suddenly it became personal, right? Now this isn't just some kid out on the field. This is some mama's baby boy out there playing, and I know how mamas are about their baby boys, and I'm thinking, okay, 
I needed that perspective, right? It, it changed my perspective to realize this is a 16, 17-year-old kid who's doing the best that he can, and yeah, he's going to make mistakes, of course. But, but once it became personal, you know, it changed. Everything changes when things become personal. And that could not be more true than it is in the area of us relating to God. I mean, it's one thing to say, God say, hey, let me give you these laws. Here are the rules that you need to follow. And frankly, that's the way a lot of people, maybe how some of you think about God. It's just, you know, God gives the rules. I'm supposed to do this, not do that. And that's as far as it gets. But things change when it gets personal. Things change when, when God says stuff like, I will be their God. They will be my people. And when God says, I'll take my word and not my, my laws and not just put it out there somewhere, but I'm going to put it inside of you. I'm going to put it in your heart. I'm going to put it on your mind. And it's going to become personal. That's what following God is all about. And I want to say to each of you and those of us that are, that are watching, God wants to have a personal relationship with you. It's not something distant, not something that, that you just are supposed to do, but it's personal. If you haven't yet taken that step toward entering into a relationship with God in a personal manner, man, that's my hope for you today and my prayer for you today is that you take that step. You know, when Jesus was about to go to the cross, he had his last meal with his disciples. He was about to pay this incredibly high price, give up himself, give up his own life as a sacrifice for us at this last supper. Jesus was teaching one last lesson. He broke the bread and he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And then it says that he took the cup and this is what it says. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, I don't know how you get any more personal than that. But Jesus said the new covenant that we're reading about in Hebrews that was pointed forward to in Jeremiah 31 this new covenant is instituted through the shedding of Christ's blood for us. So today as we wrap up this service, we're going to have a time to reflect upon that blood that was shed for us. In fact, I'm going to ask our praise team to come. If you would come and prepare to lead us through just a time of worship and reflection. We're going to um, receive communion together. So if you're following along with us, this would be a great time to grab some crackers and juice and have that ready to go. And if you're here, of course, we have the little baggies with the elements in them for you already. But I want us, as, as we prepare our hearts in light of who Jesus is, in light of this great high priest that we have who serves in this, this tabernacle in heaven in the very presence of God, who gave himself, who offered himself for us, I just want us to, to enter into a time of reflecting on that, and it's in a time of expressing our gratitude for what Christ has done for us. So let's use this as a chance to just kind of be still before the Lord and, and, and just listen. A chance to confess where there's sin maybe that needs to be confessed. And just to prepare our hearts for a time of, of receiving the elements together in just a moment. But more than anything, what that does is it helps us remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross.